Our scripture today comes from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Let me begin our series on Christology with a quote about God's heart for you. It is one thing to describe what your husband says and does and looks like. It is something else, something deeper and more real to describe his heart for you. So with Christ. It is one thing to know the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement and a hundred other vital doctrines. It is another, more searching matter to know his heart for you. Who is he? So the question for us as we study the person and work of Jesus is, is, is do you know Christ? Do you know what he has done? Or do you know him? See, you can intellectually understand what Jesus has done and still not know his heart for you. But if you know his heart for you, you will be able to fully grasp what he has done. This series of messages over the next few months will deal with who he is and what he has done. But our desire is actually to take you deeper into the heart of God. See, I think we all need a fresh encounter with Jesus. We need to encounter Maybe some of us for the first time, maybe some of us for the hundred thousandth time, the real Jesus. For nearly 2,000 years, people have been wrestling with the question, who is Jesus? See, I've got dozens of books by dozens of authors who've written thousands of pages over the course of thousands of years just on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what those scholars basically say, summarizing those four books of the Bible and all the volumes and thousands of pages that have been written over the history of the church, all of that is summed up in one question. And that one question the Gospels focus on is, who is Jesus? But Jesus is actually a big enough idea and a big enough deal and a big enough concept and indeed a big enough person that it's not just Bible scholars who are talking about him. Like, like who is Jesus is a big question that's being asked and wrestled with all around the globe every single day. There is somebody right now in our own city, one of your friends who is right now Googling who is Jesus. People are constantly attracted to him. People are constantly drawn to him. That's what this whole series is about. But today I just want to get us a glimpse of God's heart for all of us as we look at John chapter 4, where we see the story of the woman at the well and how she encounters the real Jesus. In John chapter 4, we're going to see that Jesus comes to lovingly save a racial outcast, someone who is morally unclean, and someone who is religiously confused. Somebody who is racially outcast, morally unclean, and religiously confused. Let's look first at racially outcast. John chapter 4, verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, in many ways, this scandalous and I think actually somewhat shocking story of a conversation here is a a story of a conversation that never should have happened. Now, before we talk about the racial issue, uh, what do we see here about the woman from Samaria? Okay, we're just just drawing on this into the conversation that, that to most people living in Jesus' day would have said never should have happened. What do we see about this woman from Samaria? Well, first, she was a woman. I know that's a profound insight on my part. Okay, why is that a problem? Okay, her response to Jesus even speaking to her, she's a little bit shocked, right? This is what she said. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Okay, Jewish rabbinical tradition, the teaching of the rabbis that Jesus would have engaged with and encountered uh, at the time and in his era that was enforced in his era, that's actually some of it's still enforced now in some places. They, they said things like this, uh, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even his own wife, and certainly not somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men. They also said it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. This was the common teaching for a religious holy man like Jesus. So the first issue in the conversation that probably never should have happened, according to the people around Jesus in that day, is that she's a woman. Men did not talk to women. Religious leaders did not talk to women. That is no small obstacle to overcome in that era. She's not just a woman. She's a Samaritan woman, a woman of Samaria. And she's not the good Samaritan, that's a different story with an entirely different point, but historically, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other, and they had stored up generations of animosity toward one another. Hundreds of years earlier, the people of God were uh, captured by the Babylonian Empire, carried off into exile, and they were gone into Babylon, and they were in captivity there for a number of years, a whole generation really. And when that captivity and that exile ended, a number of those Jews decided that they would stay there. And what happened was that they uh, began to marry other people from that region. They began to intermarry with the people of that land. And essentially, they started a new tribe that were called the Samaritans. But they didn't just intermarry. They actually took aspects of um, Jewish religion and aspects of local like Canaanite Uh, worship of small g gods, religion, and they blended them together to form their own way of worshiping God. Um, We're going to come back to that with religiously confused, but the people who eventually became uh, Samaritans, who came to be called Samaritans, they had intermarried, and, and what had happened was they became racially impure to the Jewish people. They were treated as outcasts. They were outsiders. So this Samaritan woman was a female racial outcast, And here Jesus is talking with her. So first, she was a racial outcast. Second, she was morally unclean. Look at this. In the verse just before what I've already read in uh, verses 7 through 10, it tells us how Jesus arrived at Jacob's well and how he encountered this Samaritan woman. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, it was about the sixth hour. It was about noon. So Jesus is tired and he's thirsty and it's in the heat of the day. 
And he's sitting by a well, but he's got nothing to draw water with. But there's a local woman there. Okay, I think every scholar that I read on every bit of this passage makes the same point. The, the local ladies who lived there did not draw water from Jacob's well at the peak heat of the day, at midday. The local ladies did not draw water at noon because they needed water earlier in the day to do all of their chores and cooking from early on. And so it's not something that you would put off until midday. The local ladies did not draw water at noon, yet here she is. So why is she there alone in the middle of the day doing something that everybody else would have done earlier on? She's a racial outcast when she sits down with a Jew like Jesus. But she's morally unclean even to her own people. Verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you have is not, the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. See, this woman at the well was a noted sinner. She was a sinner whose guilt was beyond doubt. And as if that was not bad enough, that Jesus here is talking with somebody who his own people would have considered a racial half-breed, somebody to be prejudiced against and to stand away from, Jesus is now talking one-on-one with a morally and sexually compromised woman. She's caught, and Jesus knows this, and she knows what Jesus knows, and she knows that he knows what she's done. And you've got to ask yourself the question, what's a good religious teacher supposed to do in a moment like this? She's racially outcast, she's morally unclean, and as if that is not bad enough, she's religiously confused. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Samaritans believed different things about the Old Testament, and they only followed the book of Moses or the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And very interestingly, about 400 years before this meeting is happening between Jesus and this woman, the Samaritans built their own temple on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. That's what she's referring to. And that really angered the Jews because that was not where the temple was supposed to be built. So in 128 BC, they came in and they burned it down. It's not great neighborly living, but that's the history going on between the Jews and the Samaritans. So just just think about this. Jesus is thirsty, speaks to the woman at the well. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong ethnicity, the wrong race. She's living immorally. She's living in the wrong way. And she worships in the wrong way. She's a mess. She's ethnically, morally, and religiously unclean. And yet here is Jesus saying, can I please have a drink of water? It's actually scandalous. A holy Jew would never associate with such a person, much less share a drinking jar. So you've got to ask yourself the question, what's really going on here? I want you to see that Jesus comes to her, he engages her, and he leads her to a place of encounter in spite of all of the barriers that were in place. Racially, she says, what are you doing talking to me? And he just says, hey, sister, you don't even know who you're talking to. 
I'm not worried about what you think divides us. Jesus is saying, I'm trying to show you something that transcends that completely. Verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, morally, she's caught. She's out there all by herself in the heat of the day, avoiding the rest of the ladies in the town who want nothing to do with her. And now this traveling holy man wants to speak with her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. Morally, she's caught, but do you see how gentle Jesus is with her? The way he confronts her in her sin is so gentle. See, in Jesus' world of the first century, any water that she would have drawn from that well and shared with him would have made him unclean because of the nature of her character and her conduct and her sin. She's morally unclean. And while there are others who she would have no doubt met along the way, who looked like him, dressed like him, talked like him, maybe even had the same accent as him, her experience of engaging them is very different than her experience of now engaging Jesus. All the way through the Gospels, I just want you to notice this. This is what Jesus does with morally unclean people. This is what we see him constantly doing with sinners in the Gospels. He's moving toward them. He is moved with compassion and he moves toward them, not away from them. He transcends the barriers and the obstacles that other people believe are in the way and he does not allow them to divide them or to stop or short circuit his mission of compassionate love being extended to the whole world. To quote Dane Ortland again, he said, he was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. See, she's a racial outcast. She's morally unclean. And Jesus refuses to allow those to be a barrier to his love and grace. But religiously, she's all confused. Right? And Jesus does not rebuke her or reject her or scold her in her confusion. He graciously and gently has a conversation with her and leads her to a place of encounter. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He says it's not about this mountain that you worship at or that mountain that we worship at, even though we're right. 
It's not about that. She says, yeah, 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 I know. I'm actually looking for the Messiah. And Jesus goes, hi. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, that is the question, Christ City, that we need to ask and help other people to ask. Can this be the Christ? Is this the Messiah, the Savior King we've been longing for, the one in whom we need to anchor all of our hope? Is this the Christ? So I just want to ask, as a church community, how do we approach those of different races? How do we approach those of questionable morals? How do we approach those who are religiously confused? See, the gospel transcends every barrier that we think should stop us from loving all people. There's not a hint of harshness here in Jesus toward this woman who has certainly been treated harshly by others. She was a mess. She knew that Jesus knew everything about her and she was still comfortable and compelled to come to him. That's what happens when you encounter the real Jesus. See, sometimes people come to Jesus because they fear death and the judgment of God, as they should. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they desire to have the burden of their guilt and shame to be lifted from them. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they need help with a particular problem. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they see that he can satisfy their existential longings. He can give them a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they hear the truth of the gospel and they find it intellectually compelling. And yet sometimes people come to Jesus because they simply want to be loved. Just like Jesus loved the Samaritan woman. What comes through in this passage is his heart for her. Look what he offers her, verse 10 again. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water is is running water. So there's well water and then there's living water. And and so he says, hey, I'm going to get this living water. Well, there's no living water in the midst of the desert. It's all wells. And so she says, hey, where do you get that living water, that running water? Well, he's not talking about quenching her temporal thirst. The living water he offers is not about physical thirst, but he's quoting the idea of living water as a prophetic fulfillment of what he has come to accomplish. He has come to give the living water of eternal life. 
He's talking about the salvation that we know she receives because she has here encountered the real Jesus. This is what it says later in the chapter, verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. And you ask the question, can this be the Christ? How can we be assured that these Samaritans were correct? How do we know that Jesus really is the Savior? How do we know he loves us? How do we know God's heart for us? How do we know? This is not the last time that Jesus was thirsty in the Gospel of John. Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well because it was the middle of the day and he was thirsty. But the second last thing that Jesus says as he is crucified and is there hanging on the cross, the second last thing that he says, right before the last thing he says, which is, it is finished, and he breathes his last breath and he dies, the second last thing that he said right before that was, I thirst. Listen to Dr. Tim Keller. There Jesus was experiencing the loss of the relationship with his father because he was taking the punishment we deserve for our sins. There he was cut off from the father, the source of living water. He was experiencing the ultimate tortuous, killing, eternal thirst of which the worst death by dehydration is just a hint. That is both paradoxical and astonishing. It is because Jesus Christ experienced cosmic thirst on the cross that you and I can have our spiritual thirst satisfied. It is because he died that we can be born again. See, there is no barrier to entry into the life of living water in the kingdom of Jesus. There's no barrier of entry. This is for every outcast, for every sinner, for every heretic. This is for every person who will turn from their sin, turn from their own self-salvation projects, turn from their own ways, and repent of their sin and turn and put their hope and trust in Jesus. There's no barrier of entry here racially, morally, or religiously confused. You come and have Christ. Welcome and cleanse and correct all of your erroneous ways, but here he is with no barrier of entry. This is for you. This is for me. This is for all who will come to him. This is for all who will come to him. If you're gathered with your house church, you're gathered with your house church in a backyard, you're gathered with your house church online, you're about to celebrate communion, let us consider the work of Jesus on our behalf. Let us consider that we can receive living water of eternal life whereby our thirst is eternally quenched because of what he has accomplished on our behalf. His broken body, his shed blood, the bread and the wine that we celebrate with today, 
point us to the reality of the finished work of Jesus. His work is sufficient. His work is all-sufficient. And we come to him by grace through faith alone. So today, we re-up, recommit, reaffirm our belief in the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf. We do so by repenting of our sin. We do so by once again receiving, as we receive the elements, we receive Christ new and afresh. Crucified and risen Jesus, we receive once more by faith. And so we do that today. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate in communion in your house church. If you're alone, we would say that's not where communion should be practiced. We would direct you to join a house church online and celebrate weekly the beauty and the glory of what communion points us to, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful that the mess of my life before I came to Jesus was not a barrier for your love. I thank you that you sent Jesus to atone for sin, that I may behold the cross and be assured of that love. And Father, I thank you that you have called me to participate in your mission now, even as the Samaritan woman did in her town, going and telling what you have done. And so, Father, I pray for our whole church, scattered as we are, quarantined as we are, socially distant as we are, physically distant as we are. Lord, I pray for opportunities to share the hope that we have in Jesus this week. And I pray that as we do so, you would empower us by the Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us where we are right now in this moment. Fill us afresh with power and love that we might serve this city all around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.